Well, thank you, choir. In your Bible today, the book of Romans, chapter 6 this morning. If you will turn there and find the place with me, Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. And why don't you stand with me as we read God's Word together this morning, Romans chapter 6, and we will begin a brand new section of the book of Romans today. The subject completely changes, starting with uh, this chapter. From the beginning here, I've been talking to you about uh, justification, God's remedy for sin, salvation primarily in some form or another. Now today we begin a brand new chapter, and the chapter is a brand new subject, if you will. So we will begin the reading, and I'm going to read through 16 verses here. So follow with me. Now, let me notice something as you follow with me here. I'll be honest with you. I think Romans 6 and 7 are two of the hardest chapters in the Bible to understand. They are very, very difficult. And if you don't think with me and follow, you will have wasted your time today. How many today have some degree, a brain. Okay, I want you to turn it on. Flip the switch, because you need your brain today. Okay, you've got to think with me. But what if I told you this passage of Scripture can affect your life more than anything I could preach after your salvation? After your salvation... This passage is absolutely paramount in its importance. You've got to understand this. Many Christians live today defeated lives because they don't understand Romans 6 and 7. So if you will listen, it will profit you. So I'm I'm really pushing you on this thing here today. I know it's hard. People now, our brains are trained to seven-minute increments. That's how long it is between commercials. And so once we watch television long enough, you know, every seven minutes we have to stop and think about something else. And I've got news for you today. This ain't a seven-minute sermon. So you're going to stick with me, okay? You can do it. we got some smart people here, but i got to kind of get you going here with that. All right, chapter 6 of Romans, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, look, that's the real issue here. After we're saved, we continue in sin so that God can keep on giving us His grace. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, We shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that our old man, that refers to what we were before we were saved, before we were justified. Our old man is crucified with him, 
that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve or be slaves of sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, and death hath no more dominion or control or rule over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon or count you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto Christ, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign or rule or control your body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Here's a key passage. For sin shall not have dominion, control, rule, power over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, whoever you obey, his servant you are to whom you obey, whether it be yielding unto, unto sin, which brings death, or yielding to obedience unto the Lord, which yields righteousness. Heavenly Father, now I pray that you will fill me with your spirit, guide and control every word that I say, and open the hearts of those who hear, whether they be in this auditorium or elsewhere. Lord, my prayer is that you will help us to be the kind of people you intended us to be. And I pray this in Jesus' wonderful name and for his sake. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, as I said, this represents a major division if you were outlining the book of Romans today. The subject now changes from justification, which we've been talking about now for six months or so. It changes now to a whole new term or concept, and that is the concept of sanctification. That's a big word, isn't it? Say it with me, everybody together. Sanctification. One more time. Sanctification. What an important word, and we rarely hear it in our world of today. Now, justification, as I've been preaching, one more little reminder about it. That's where when a sinner believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, when when an unsaved person accepts the gospel, truly believes and relies on the gospel of Christ, when that happens, God saves that sinner, we say. He justifies that sinner. He declares that sinner no longer to be under sin, but he declares that person to be righteous. When God justifies us, he forgives us of every sin. When we're justified, we're pardoned from the power and the penalty of sin. When we are justified, 
we're acquitted, if you will. The charges are dropped that were formally against us in our previous state. Now, why does God do that, and how does he do that? What right does he do to, what right does God have to just say, you're forgiven, and you're pardoned, you're acquitted of your sins? Well, God does that based upon Christ going to the cross 2,000 years ago and dying for our sins, paying our penalty, becoming our substitute, actually, in reality, taking our place. Jesus Christ hung on the cross in the place of Bill Monroe, and if you're a Christian, you can put your name there. Now, listen to me. And in the matter of salvation, your morality, how good you live, how virtuous you are, however many good works you've done in your life, it has absolutely nothing, zero, zilch, zip to do with you being justified. Nothing. However virtuous you've lived in life has nothing to do with God justifying you. That's a work of God, not you. And we keep getting these things mixed up, and so we have problems living as the Lord would have us to. So justification is by grace. By grace are you saved through faith and not of good works, not of your virtue, your good deeds, your morality, has nothing to do with it. Because grace, by definition, is unearned. It's unmerited. It's undeserved, isn't it? We've made that point over and over. Now, though, we make a big change here in the book of Romans. Chapter 6 is, after salvation, then what is my relationship to sin? And that's the subject of chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8. So this section goes on for three chapters here, the idea of sanctification. Now, the word sanctification is really not used uh, at all. I don't think, well, maybe in 8, but not in 6. But the thing separation, uh, sanctification is there. For example, if I told you today that the Bible does not have the word future in it, would you say there's nothing in the Bible about the future? No, you wouldn't say that, would you? The Bible is full of the future. There, 25% of the Bible is prophecy and it has to do with the future. But the word future doesn't have to be there for us to deal with future things. The word sanctification doesn't have to be in every verse for us to be dealing with the subject of sanctification. Big word. Say it with me one more time. When you go home for lunch today and somebody said, what did your pastor preach about today? You say he preached about sanctification. What is sanctification? If you want to make a note or two, you can see in that word sanctification that it's related to the word saint. The word saint comes from the same word. And the word sanctuary. This is a sanctuary, the same word. The word sanctimonious has a negative connotation, same word. Because the word sanctification or sanctify means to set apart, to separate away from, in this case, sin for a holy purpose. 
So here's the definition, again, of sanctification. Don't miss it. Sanctify means to set apart for holy purposes. So a saint, now follow with me, look with me. A saint is a person who has been set apart for holy purposes. A sanctuary is a building, a place that's been set apart for holy purposes. A sanctimonious person is a person who thinks they're better than the rest of us because they've been set apart for holy purposes more than you and me. That's sanctimonious. So it comes from a a Latin word sanctus, which means to make holy or to be holy. And look at that definition. Get it in mind because it's three more chapters dealing with that subject. To sanctify is to set something apart for a holy purpose, to separate it out. So I'm going to sanctify one of these flowers to set it apart for a holy purpose. So you see that beautiful red flower? I just sanctified it. I pulled it out of the cluster. I set it apart for holy purposes. The purpose is I'm trying to illustrate what sanctification is. It's a holy purpose, isn't it? So I just sanctified that flower. It's different than the rest of these flowers now. They're down here in this cluster. I think I just ruined that thing, but we'll get over that. But uh, there's those flowers down there, and their purpose is to, for you to have a nice, beautiful place to look. Now, this, this one just got changed. It got set apart for an entirely different purpose, the purpose to make my point in the sermon. But here's my point. It is God's will for you to be sanctified. Now, Baptists don't use that term much. Now, if you talk to some of our Pentecostal friends, they'll say, I was saved and I was sanctified and I was filled with the Holy Ghost, and that's sort of a term they use. But in Baptist circles, you don't hear it near enough because it is a vital and important Bible teaching all through the New Testament once you begin to see it. I want you to turn to just one passage, and I want you to absolutely lock down in your mind, it is God's plan, purpose, and will for me to be sanctified. Turn over in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 3, and words cannot be clearer or plainer or more distinct than they are right here. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 3, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. There it is. It can't be clear. God wants you and me, every believer, to be a sanctified person, a true saint, if you will. Now, the verse goes on and says that you should abstain from fornication because that's the subject he's talking about here at this particular passage. I want you to be set apart for a holy purpose. This is God's will for you that you abstain from fornication because they lived in a very wicked, immoral, lascivious community. And these Christians were engaging in sexual sins. And Paul says, no, I don't want you to do that. You abstain from that. I want you to know this is God's will for you. And it can't be plainer. Mark that in your Bible, my friend, today. Now, the, 
Lord Jesus Christ prayed that you would be sanctified. Do you know that Jesus has been praying for us to be sanctified? And in John chapter 17 and verse 17, Jesus Christ prayed this prayer just moments before he went to the cross as he knelt in the garden to pray. And here was his prayer. Talking about the disciples and Christian people, he said, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. And Jesus prayed that I would be set apart for holy purposes to be used of God in my lifestyle. This is the will of God for every one of us. Now, let me tell you something else about sanctification. Now, don't miss this. Look up here and get this. Salvation occurs just like this when I believe in Christ. It's a one-time event. It occurs one time forever, and the Lord declares me forgiven, justified. He, he declares me to be righteous, acquitted of all the charges, pardoned, and all the words that go with that. But now, sanctification is not a one-time, one-moment event. Sanctification is a process. And there's a little saying that I've used through the years. You've probably heard me use it before. I have it written in most of my Bibles, and I love the statement. It goes like this. The conversion of a soul, that's justification, is the miracle of a moment. You can get saved like that, the moment you receive Christ. The conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment. But the growth of a saint at sanctification is the task of a lifetime. Man, what a great statement. I'll say it one more time. The conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment. But the growth of a saint is the task of a lifetime. It's a process. It's not a one-time event. We used to sing a little song back in the 80s. A little chorus, and I remember we singing around our church here. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It, take, it, it took him just a week to make the sun, moon, and stars, and it goes on and on, but then it, he's still working on me. How many of you today, the Lord's still working on you, trying to get you set apart from some of the things that you know are wrong in your life? Sure, he's working on every one of us. As long as you're in this body, that process of sanctification is going on. God is working to make us all that he wants us to be. Now, as a believer then, what is, this, this passage, this whole three-chapter passage here, as a believer, what is my relationship to sin now that I'm saved? I know I've been pardoned and forgiven, and I, and I have eternal life, and I'm going to heaven. So what about the normal, everyday sins of life and the temptations that we all endure and the failings and, and, and picadillos or whatever you want to call them in our life? And in chapter number 6 and in verse number 1, look at the verse with me and give it good attention. Paul says, shall we continue in sin? He's writing to people who've been justified now. Remember, they're already saved at this point. Shall we continue in our sins? that grace may abound. We say God's grace abounds. We go back to chapter 5 and verse 20, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So our, God's grace is greater than our sins. We sing about that. Marvelous grace of Jesus, greater than all of our sins. 
And that is so true. So then do we take advantage of that free grace? Do we say, okay, now I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. I have eternal life. I'm not going to lose my salvation because God doesn't ever unjustify anybody. So I can just go out and sin all I want. God's grace is greater than my sin, isn't it? That's what he's dealing with here in that question. Think about the question. Now, that question is so important. He asked it again in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law? We're not trying to keep the law to be saved. We're under grace. God forgives us, and grace means it's unmerited, undeserved, unearned, all that. Then do we just keep on sinning because we're not under the law but under grace? Do we just take advantage of the grace? I want you to notice his answer. He says it twice. In verse 2, the first two words, God forbid. Verse 15, God forbid. Now, I emphasize it with my voice because if you were reading this in the original Greek language of the New Testament, that is the strongest negative that he can use. There is no word that he can use that's stronger than saying, no, God forbid. Where in the world did that come? He almost says it with outrage. It's that strong a term. What in the world are you thinking about? Perish the thought that because I've been saved, I can go out and live any way I want and just say, well, God's grace will take care of me. And he says twice, no, God forbid that I'd even begin to think like that. Here's the way you hear it today. And I think that the Holy Spirit inspiring the Bible, I know that he did. He anticipated that people would misunderstand the purpose of God in his grace. And I think people tend to misunderstand God's grace more than any other subject I can think of. I think that so many people, they misunderstand it. So there, there's something about the human mind that we're legalistic. And we always are thinking in terms of we got to do this if we're going to please God. And we don't understand we can't please God in our natural state. And so the Holy Spirit inspiring the text here anticipates that people are going to misunderstand the teaching of grace. Now, here's how it comes off in our world right now. And you've heard this. If you've lived in the PD and you've been to any church, you've probably heard this. Well, pastor, since we're saved by grace, then it doesn't matter how much we sin, huh? Is that what you say? And Paul's dealing with that. That's not what I'm saying. God forbid, he said. And I've had people say to me, Well, if you preached grace and eternal security especially, if you preach eternal security, you're just encouraging people to go out and live loose and sinful and worldly lives. Oh, you should. You got to be careful with that grace stuff. You've heard that, haven't you? Here's the way we say it in the PD. Preacher, are you telling me that if you're really truly saved, that you can't ever lose your salvation, so you just get it, go out and, and live any way you want to live? Why, preacher, if I believed that, I'd just go out and sin all I wanted, huh? <laughs> As he spits his tobacco juice out. That's the PD. 
I just go out and live any way I want to live. Preacher, if I believe that stuff. Old boy came up to D.L. Moody one day. If I believe what you do, Mr. Moody, why, I just go out and sin all I wanted. And D.L. Moody said, my friend, I do. I do sin all I want. Because when the Lord justified and saved me, he changed my wanter. And if your attitude is, if it's by grace, I'll just go and I'll make a profession of faith and I'll just pop my cork and live like hell the rest of my life and God's grace will take me on into heaven. Wow, sure, I'll go for that deal. I'll punch my ticket and get my, my pass on the fire escape. No, 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 you didn't get it. You need to come back and get another bath. You need another trip. You need another inoculation into this salvation thing. You see, when God saves you, he puts inside you his Holy Spirit. And I sin all I want. Do I sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. And every time I do, it bothers me. And that's the surest proof, probably, of my salvation. Here's the way I know I'm saved. Can I still sin? Yeah. Do you know what? God ruined my party when he saved me. He reigned on my party, didn't he? I can sin, but I can't sin to enjoy it. And the moment that I do, the Holy Spirit wells up with them, and he says, Bill, you shouldn't have done that. Bill, that was wrong for saying that. That was wrong for you to entertain that thought. Your motive in doing that was wrong. And the Lord speaks to me, and he convicts me, and the Holy Spirit convicts me. And let me say, my friend, if you can sin with impunity... If you can sin and, and know that you've sinned and it doesn't bother you at all, I suspect, and I say it lovingly, you need another trip to Calvary. That's what Paul's saying about God forbid twice. Can a Christian just go on and sin all he wants? No, because that's not, that would be the abuse of grace. Turn with me over to the book of Jude, and it describes it here. And the book of Jude is the little book right there before you go to the book of Revelation, you know. And if you'll go down to verse 4 in the book of Jude, he said, There are certain men that are crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men. Ungodly men, it describes them. Now, look how it describes these ungodly men. They turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Lasciviousness means all kind of sexual looseness and immorality of all kinds. And Paul says when people abuse and take advantage of the grace of God, they turn God's grace into immorality, if you will, lasciviousness. That's not what it's about. 
So twice Paul asked the question, can a person truly be saved and just sin flagrantly and not care about it? And he answers it with, no, that's outrageous. God forbid. Now, the confusion then comes because we, we mix together ideas about justification and ideas about sanctification. Here's the way I would, I would illustrate it to you. Think with me. Justification is the little baby being born. Sanctification is the baby growing up, the child growing up. When we were justified, we were born again, and it happened instantly. Now, once the baby's born, the rest of that child's life, that child is growing in various ways, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever. I was saved at a moment in time. Now, the rest of my life is the process of God working in me and me allowing Him to make me to be set apart for His purposes in my life. So Paul's answer here comes in verse 2. Shall we continue sinning? He means practicing sin flagrantly and not caring about it, that grace may abound. No, God forbid. How shall we that are dead in sin live any longer therein? Okay, now mark in your Bible that phrase there, dead to sin. And you, if you're a believer, you're dead to sin. But what in the world does that mean? Because you say, I don't think I'm dead to it, preacher. I had some problems with it on the way to church. So what does he mean when he uses that phrase? By the way, that phrase is used over and over and over here. Notice, if you will, in verse number 6, you see it again. Knowing that our old man is crucified with him. Crucifixion, of course, results in death. So he's saying that we are dead to sin. Go down to verse number 8. Now, if we be dead with Christ, there it is again. Go down to verse 11. Likewise, reckon yourself or consider yourself to be dead indeed unto sin. And he says it over and over throughout the chapter. It's in there more times than that. I think I've made my point to you. I hope so. And what does that mean? Okay, look here with me. When Christ died on the cross, he hung there on the cross as my substitute. And here's what's important to see. God saw me there on the cross with him representatively. Do you understand that with me? Nod your head if you do. You understand that? When when Christ was on the cross, in the mind of God, I am so identified with Christ as a believer that God saw me there with him. Let me give you an illustration. Our congressman is Congressman Tom Rice from Myrtle Beach. He represents, in fact, he is called a representative, Congress, congressional representative. He is in the House of Representatives, a house full of people who represent the population of the United States. Tom Rice goes up there and sits at his desk in the Congress, and when he votes, when he pushes the button and makes a vote for any bill... He is voting for all 700,000 people who live in the 7th Congressional District. In essence, when Tom Rice puts his finger on the button and pushes the button in favor or against a bill, he is really, my hand is on the button too. 
See, he's my representative. So in a sense, you and I are on the floor of the House of Representatives voting in Tom Rice because he is our substitute. All of us can't go to Washington and vote for every bill. So he represents all of us. He takes our place, and we are in him representatively, if you will. And so God views me as having been at the cross and that my body of sin, the old sinful nature that I have, having died in Christ and then resurrected with him three days later. My favorite preacher, you know who it is, don't you? It's Adrian Rogers. I just wish when Adrian had died that the Lord had given me that voice of Adrian Rogers. That big, but he didn't. But um, I have an Adrian Rogers Bible, and he wrote one of the most blessed things, and I want to read it because I want to say it exactly like Adrian said it about this passage. Now, listen to me. You still listening? Got, we're past seven minutes. Okay. When Jesus Christ died, not only did he die for us, but we also died with him. Now, you may think that's just a play on words, but it's not. It is a glorious truth. You see, when you're dead, then death has no more dominion over you. You can't kill someone who's already dead. Suppose a man is put to death for a capital crime, and yet somehow he is raised back to life. Can he be arrested again for his crime? Absolutely not. That would be double jeopardy. He has already paid the penalty of his crime. You need to understand that when Jesus died, you died with him as a Christian. And the law has no more claim on you. Your sin debt has been paid in full because he died for you. You died with him, and now we're raised to walk together in newness of life. Isn't that beautiful? That's what, now this chapter is pretty heavy. It's pretty deep, but isn't that, that's just wonderful. I'm dead to sin. And so let me give you two things specifically that means. One, I'm dead to the penalty of sin. When I was saved, all the charges against me were resolved. And I'm pardoned, and I'm acquitted of my past sins. I am declared to be righteous in the sight of God. That's salvation. Now, I'm, now that I am a Christian, the process of sanctification means that I'm dead to the power of sin in my life. Sin shall no longer have dominion over you. Sin shouldn't control you. Some of you, before you were saved, you had some addiction, some habit of thought, something that basically ruled you and controlled you. It could have been as simple as a cigarette, but it could also be viewing pornography on the Internet. It could have been anger. There's a thousand different things. I don't even, I can't even begin to illustrate them. Hatred and anger toward someone or, or, or toward life in general. 
And now God is working in your life as a Christian, and he's giving you the power to overcome those things. Do we still have carnal impulses after we're saved? Absolutely. Do we have evil desires? Yes. Do we have temptations? Yes. But I want you to see in verse number 16, don't miss this verse. Look there with me. That God has given us the power to overcome sin, but our role in it is we cannot yield to it. And so in verse 16, a powerful verse, don't you know that whoever you yield to, you're that person's servant or slave to obey them? How many times, let's say temper, that was one of mine, is one of mine. And how many times have I lost my temper and I've said without thinking something that I should not have said? And I said, oh, I confessed it to the Lord and I said, why did I do that? I'll never do that again. How many people here have said, I'll never do that again? And then I'm not thinking about God's work in my life, and one day I do it again. And I say, Lord, I confess it. That's so wrong. I'm, oh, Lord, I repent of that. I feel, I'll never do it again. And then I do it again. But I don't have to do it again. Look at verse 16. Whoever I yield to, that's my master, the master of temper in that case. And he said, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether you obey sin, which brings death, or whether you obey righteousness and life. Now, If you got a piece of paper, and I've got about five minutes, and I'm going to finish this up, but I want to show you the resources that God has given you to overcome sin in your life as a Christian. Write them down. There's five of them. The process of sanctification, then, that God's going to be doing in our lives. Number one, God has given you the Word of God. And that's why at this church, that is an absolute drumbeat constantly, all the time. Every time you come, you're probably going to hear something about it. The Word of God is one of the resources, one of the things that God uses to bring His purposes about in your life to sanctify you. Now, here's the verse of Scripture. Again, right down beside the Word of God, John 17, 17. John 17, 17. It is Jesus' prayer in the garden. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus said, sanctify them through the word of God. The more of God's word that you study and know and think about and hear and practice, the more this process of sanctification will be real in your life. You've got to feed your soul on it. You've got to wake up in the morning and get to the Word of God whenever you can throughout the day. You've got to begin the day with the Bible in your lap. You've got to think the Word of God. Blessed is the man that 
walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night, Psalm 1. The only time success is used in the Bible is John 1, 8, the word success. And in John 1, or, pardon me, in Joshua 1, 8. And in Joshua 1, 8, the idea is that you achieve success through constantly thinking and meditating on and practicing the principles of the Word of God. I could go on and on. Psalm 119.9, how can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed to the Word of God? Over and over. I could probably give you 50 references on that. But the number one thing in sanctifying and bringing about God's purpose in your life is the Word of God. Number two, though, is the blood of Christ. Hebrews 13, 12, write that down. We won't turn there. That he might sanctify the people with his blood. And it specifically says the blood of Christ is the sanctifying agent. The old, in, in old times, 100 years ago or so, the preachers and people used this term. They said, when you sin, you plead the blood. You plead the blood of Christ. Haven't you heard that term maybe if you've been, if you're over 25 or 30, maybe? You plead the blood. What did they mean with, uh, when they said, we plead the blood of Christ? They were referring back to when in Israel, a person sinned, the people would come and bring their sacrifice to the priest. And, and the priest would make the offering for them, and he would always shed blood in every case. Now, Jesus shed his blood on the cross, but his blood is still available I won't go into the eternality of the Word of God or the blood of Christ, but the blood of Christ is still doing its saving function. We forget that. It didn't run down the ground and go in the, uh, run down the cross and go in the ground and, 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 and has no function today. It's a, it's a deep subject I don't have time for. But Christ came and offered himself for us. He was our sacrificial lamb for our sins. And his blood is still available today to help us overcome our sins. And so we sing out of our hymn book, Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's what? Power in the blood. The blood will never lose its power. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that blood, lose all their guilty stains. The power of the blood to sanctify. There's a third thing. It's the Holy Spirit. First Peter 1, 2. The Holy Spirit. And First Peter 1, 2 talks about the sanctification of the Spirit. The, sancti- the, the Holy Spirit is a sanctifying force in our lives. When you got saved, the Holy Spirit came in to indwell you, to live in your heart. And I said a while ago that I know I'm saved because I can sin, but I can't sin and enjoy it. The Holy Spirit wells up. What does the Holy Spirit do when a Christian sins? He convicts us. It's as if there's a little small voice there that says, you shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. And he convicts us. And the conviction doesn't, isn't cleansing, but then that drives me to number four, which is prayer. 
and I confess my sins to the Lord. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we pray, Lord, every day, lead us not into temptation. Don't let me be overcome by these things. But, Lord, I pray for your sanctifying power in my life. And the last one, the number five, is the local church. The local church is a sanctifying agent. The Bible says real clearly, Hebrews 10, 25, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Some people were already doing it then. Don't stop being faithful to church. Why? Because it sanctifies us. We come to church, we hear the word. We sing these songs. It's so important that you all sing and pour out your heart expressions to the Lord and worship. And then there's the fellowship of our brothers and sisters. There are the prayers. There's the preaching and teaching of the word. And everything that we're doing here tends to lift us above the world and make us think about eternal things. And it tends to call us apart from our sinful predispositions and sanctifies. We get support here. We don't get anywhere else for our spiritual life. Now, what is sanctification? To be set apart for a special holy purpose. And when God saved you, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, he said, I pulled you out of the world. Don't be like the rest of the world. I have a holy purpose for you. I want you to be my agent, my ambassador in the world. And he gives you five resources to help you to live a sanctified life. The Word of God, the blood of Christ, the indwelling Holy Spirit, prayer, and a local church. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, in prayer, please.